incumbent controller Tom DiNapoli. This is Ben Max. Thanks for joining us here on Max and Murphy. How are you? Ben, I'm great. It's wonderful to be on Max and Murphy. Yes, and we didn't tell you ahead of time, but Jared actually had to uh, depart for the second half of the show, so it's me and you. Um, but it's good good to have a chance to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so we're in the heat of election season here. We've got less than five weeks until Election Day, November 6th. Tell voters uh, and those listening, what's your pitch for getting another four years as the state controller? Well, I think that uh, the uh, easy way to answer that question is uh, for the voters to look at the record of achievement and accomplishment that I've had. During my time in office, the controller's office, state controller's office, is a somewhat unique position. Uh, Many folks don't know quite what we do. They know it's something to do with money, uh, but it certainly has been a very important position to keeping the state moving forward during challenging times. And certainly if you look at uh, how effectively we've managed the state payroll, state contracts, state payments, uh, it, it certainly has been uh, a, a very large and efficient body of work in that regard. Kind of called the back office operation for state government. Very important to keep uh, New York moving. Uh, our commentary on state fiscal practices, state budget, uh, has been thoughtful and made a number of suggestions for reform and change, most of which have not been adopted by the legislature and the governor, but we're going to keep pressing. Our uh, stewardship of the state pension fund is one area that I take a particular uh, pride in when you look at the number of states that have poorly funded pensions and are in crisis. New York does not have that issue or challenge. In fact, we're one of the best funded state pension plans in the country. It means we can deliver on the retirement security to the 1.1 million members of our pension system. And we've done more to invest money in New York State and to be responsible investors uh, holding corporations we invest in accountable on a host of issues that I think are important to New Yorkers and most importantly important to um, ensuring the bottom line profitability long term of our investments. I've been independent. I call the shots as I see them. Um, not necessarily with a lot of fanfare or uh, theatrics, but uh, I, I don't think that's what the controller's job is all about. It's, it's to be the steady hand with a long-term view, to try to have a more informed discussion of, of, of issues in the state. I think we fulfill that expectation, done it the right way, done it with independence, and uh, we want to keep serving the people of the state of New York, and that's why I'm running for uh, another term to be state controller. So let's stick with that last point for a second about independence, about uh, speaking up, and it ties, I think, to one of the other things you mentioned, which is that you've had some reforms that you've pushed for, but you noted that most of them have not been adopted by the governor and or the legislature. What are a couple of those things, and why haven't they been adopted? Why haven't uh, why haven't you been able to put enough pressure on to to get those reforms through? You know, I always say one of the challenges of this job, people sometimes think that, you know, as controller and having input, uh, you know, in terms of expressing opinions on budget and state spending, that that means that we somehow control spending. But this office doesn't decide where the money goes, nor do we make law. Uh, so, you know, I always have to clarify that that still is the prerogative of the governor and the legislature. At a minimum, Ben, I would like to see uh, what's been a timely debate in Albany this year, restoration of the oversight authority with regard to contracts that was taken away from us a few years ago, all under the guise of being more efficient, uh, suggesting that the independent review from the controller's office uh, was somehow an inefficient part of the process when, in fact, you know, we turned 
turnaround contracts uh, easily in less than two weeks. I think our, our latest figure is about take a little over seven days uh, to turn around contracts. But uh, centralized contracts that are now bid through the Office of General Services, billions of dollars of contracts no longer uh, get our review as they did uh, just a few short years ago. Uh, That's one SUNY. subset, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's one subset of contracts, right? Okay. Yeah, and it's also SUNY mm-hmm. and CUNY construction contracts. And, and when you see how for the economic development programs, the SUNY system was used with the creation of these nonprofits as a way to funnel money, it you had you did not have the transparency that could provide the accountability that you needed. And you know, we saw some of what came out in the in the trials and in the convictions and you know I I have a a specific bill to restore the oversight that was taken away and to really put some enhancements in there, more clear uh, ethics requirements in terms of contracting, to prohibit the creation of these nonprofits, which end up being a backdoor way to funnel state money without the kind of scrutiny that there should be. Uh, So there are a number of pieces of reform. That bill passed the state Senate, only two votes dissenting. Um, It's pending in the Assembly. Uh, I'd like to see action in the Assembly, maybe by the end of the year. Certainly, I hope next year. The other bill which I support is the database of deals that many of the reform groups have put forward. So those those are two areas that really get to that issue of transparency, particularly with regard to the way um, there has been spending on economic development programs. Not exclusively, but that's been certainly a big thrust of it. We've also had a number of other proposals relating to state fiscal practices. One of the areas that I think uh, really needs addressing is this continued reliance on these large lump sums of money where it's not defined how the money's going to be spent. Again, you you don't have the kind of transparency that you need. A more clear requirement uh, as to when we build up our reserves. Uh, We haven't put as much money into our reserve funds as we should. While the state's in pretty good shape today, who knows what the future's going to be. We're not as prepared as we should be for an economic downturn. So those are some of the kinds of reforms. Debt reform, we have a very detailed uh, uh, plan in terms of getting a better handle on uh, on debt and debt management in our state. So we've had a number of reforms that we've, we've pressed for. We're going to continue to call for. They may not be the kind of issues that um, makes the average person's blood boil, but from my perspective, they are important items. If if you're going to reform government and make it more transparent and accountable. Well, you hit on some of those things. I mean, I think folks, the the folks who pay some attention to the news, but maybe not following things in and out every day, they see some of the corruption trials that have happened, some of the convictions. They get very upset about how state government is functioning or not functioning. Uh, and issues around corruption in both the legislature, the executive branch, um, some of these offshoot nonprofits, and and some of that traces back to the very things you're talking about, which yeah. is contract uh, pre-approval, uh, the lump sums in the budget that if folks really you know follow this there's billions and billions of dollars that get passed in the state budget every year that really aren't clearly earmarked and then become something of a slush fund for Absolutely. elected yeah. officials so yeah. and then years later the money is spent and people are wondering where did the money come from right. how is it decided there's no real objective criteria the pro- the problem is you know and and when i talk about these issues uh, with an informed group uh, you know or or a group that's focused on state issues they get it and they advocate for it but it, it's not necessarily kind of bread and butter issue that the average person focuses on. You know, another area of reform, just broadly speaking, that I think we need is, is, is election reform. I mean, you know, certainly the influence of money, big sums of money that are allowed in New York state elections, uh, we need to change that. We need to have public financing of elections to provide more competition and, and to incentivize small donations. I mean, that's another area. You talk to people, they get it, but... 
does that motivate their vote? Unfortunately, not often enough. So that's a pretty long list of reforms. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, there is there are these lists that have been out there and people, some in the legislature, some advocates have been pushing for. So let me stick with this this theme for, for one more minute here. And that is one of the critiques, which I'm sure you, you hear, is that you're too nice. Uh, that you you know you sort of go along and get along, and that people say, especially in this climate with all these corruption trials and the fact that these reforms haven't gotten through, people are clamoring for uh, people who take a harder line, outsider type candidates, um, and and they say, you know. Comptroller DiNapoli seems to be doing a good job in X, Y, and Z ways, but the forcefulness is not there in terms of calling out these issues and these reforms just aren't getting through. How do you respond you know, to folks who say, we need, we need someone who's really ready to sort of uh, you know, grab a, a pitchfork? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, and Ben, you know me over the years, I'm not half as nice as everybody says I am. So, you know, let's let's just state that for the record. So, uh, you know, I, I really think, I mean, you look at what's happening in Washington, you've got people with pitchforks all over the place, and that's part of why nothing gets done. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the controller's role is one to provide uh, informed information to help to frame the discussion, to try to persuade people to move in a positive and a reform direction. Standing there with a pitchfork is not going to solve anything. There is no institutional authority that the controller has. You could stomp your feet all you want, and everybody could just pat you on the head and say, "Fine, keep stomping your feet." Doesn't doesn't make a damn bit of difference. There is no power other than the credibility of the office. What's made this office effective, and you go back to Ned Regan, you go to you know Carl McCall, you go, you go to Arthur, Arthur Levitt, who most of you younger listeners won't even know the name, but these were individuals who had credibility as controller, not because they had a pitchfork or they stamped their feet, but because they gave thoughtful information, made thoughtful recommendations, they had credibility, they weren't viewed as partisan, they weren't viewed as a uh, people who are just trying to disrupt. This office is not set up, you know, to uh, to be obstructionist. This office is set up to make sure government functions, functions smoothly, to give thoughtful information in the least partisan way. And I know the times we're living in, everybody wants to beat each other up. Uh, that That's not the controller's role. It's one of the reasons why I actually like the job, having been in the legislature for a long time, where you had to have an opinion on everything, and sometimes you had to make, uh, you know, a lot of noise. Although, you know, when I look at my record, I had a lot of achievements in the legislature, and that was back in the day when there was a solid Republican majority, and I was a Democrat in the in the assembly. We got a lot done because we figured out how to work together and how to cross party lines. Probably not enough of that going on today, but people should not mistake uh, being um, a pleasant person in most situations with being uh, not strong. And and you know we've come back any number of times. I was very glad finally this year we got the Senate to pass our reform bill. Uh, it took us a couple of years to get to that point. But we've made progress, and I want to be there to continue to make progress and to do it with credibility. I'm not looking to yell louder than anybody else. Frankly, we've got too much loudness going on right now in general. I want to stay focused on the job and deliver results for people. Let's shift to the audit powers of the of the office. Um, speak a little bit about how you've used those powers, um, issues you've exposed, or ways you've held state government or local governments accountable. Well, you know, we do hundreds of audits a year on on state uh, agencies, public authorities, local governments across uh, the state. 
you know, we look at, at a host of issues. In most cases, we're recommending opportunities to make government more efficient, uh, to do a better job for taxpayers. What we have also done is expanded our investigative work. So we have audit divisions, and then we have an investigative unit. Because unfortunately, Ben, we find too many situations where it's not just a question of efficiency. It's a question of corruption and people stealing money. We've had a particular collaboration with the Attorney General's Office that began when Eric Schneiderman uh, became Attorney General. It continues now with Barbara Underwood. We have a joint task force on public integrity. We've developed strong relationships with DAs across the state, U.S. attorneys, FBI, state police. Uh, just that work alone on the public corruption side uh, since 2011, dozens of arrests. I think the total number now is, is over one, 180 arrests of either elected officials, appointed officials, or heads of nonprofits that are managing state money. We've gotten back in restitution for taxpayers $54 million. So it really runs the gamut of, of trying to make recommendations for government to be more efficient and, and letting people know that if someone is, is, is stealing or ripping off taxpayers, we can be part of that process to hold people accountable. We've done a lot of work on IDAs, industrial development agencies. Agencies. Out of that audit work, we came up with a reform piece of legislation that actually was passed about a year and a half, two years ago now. We're now going to do audits to see how the IDAs are complying with those changes, which require more uh, standardization of applications, opportunity to claw back benefits if a project does not produce the jobs that it, it, it had advertised it was going to produce. So, so that's an example where our audit work resulted in a legislative proposal, which we were able to get passed by both houses and signed by the governor. And now we're going to audit to see how it's being implemented. Right. So, These IDAs are uh, often uh, quite sort of opaque and off the radar yeah. and spending a lot of money yeah. um, that comes through the state. Uh, let me ask you about it's sort of similar to the idea of the author- authorities in the state and particularly MTA. Mm-hmm. What what oversight do you have there? Is there anything more you can do? You talk about monitoring efficiency and effectiveness of state spending. Uh, boy, the MTA seems like a place that really could use um, some more of that. Well, it's it's one of the priority areas for our audits. We've, we've put out uh, dozens of audits. We, we, we do on a regular basis uh, reports, not audits, on the, uh, the MTA's financial plan. We're going to continue to do that. There's no more important service to the people of the state. The MTA has an independent board uh, who's ultimately responsible for the work of the MTA. There's also an MTA inspector general. So there are a lot of folks that, that are looking at the MTA in various ways. Uh, clearly, it's not working. It's not working the way it should. You know, we, we've called out uh, issues on service. We've called out issues on, on how they've uh, managed their, their land. We've called out issues on work schedules. There, there are a number of issues that we've raised. You know, what sometimes happens, and, and, and people can read our audits, they're all online. You know, very, very often, uh, it's a little better, I'd say, recently, but in the past, we've often gotten tremendous resistance from the MTA. And one of the challenges we have with our audits and audit function is that we can make recommendations, but we can't we have no enforcement power. You know, the, the audits uh, stand on their merits. And unfortunately, in the past, we've seen many situations where the MTA just says, no, we don't agree. And then they, they don't adopt the change. So I think there's been a little bit of a more open uh, attitude there, I think because, <laughs> rightfully so, they're getting beat up from all quarters. So we're going to continue our audit work in that area. But but MTA, uh, you know, the Thruway Authority, state agencies, local governments, the power of our audits is a chance to take a look. We can make recommendations. There, there is no authority for us to compel compliance with the recommendation. We can do follow 
follow-up audits, and we do that on a regular basis. But the MTA is certainly one of the high-impact areas that we've done a lot of audit work, and we're going to continue to do more. So you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is the Max and Murphy program, and we are joined right now by State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, who's seeking another term this election season. November 6th is Election Day, and voter registration deadlines coming up October 12th. If you're not registered to vote, get that in uh, and be ready for for November 6th. So, Comptroller DiNapoli, I want to ask you uh, about a recent story published by a combination of publications, Capital in Maine, Sludge, and WMYC, about your now former chief investment officer who um, left the controller's office after after managing some of the the pension fund investments and took a position um, with a with a company that uh, she had led investment um, into um, I saw that your office put out statements for that story that indicated finding no wrongdoing and no real conflict of interest there um, but I don't know that you've had an opportunity to address that uh, what's your uh, feeling about there was was there an issue with the fact that um, she was able to manage those investments in that company and then take a position with the board well I mean we have to define what one means by managing uh, the investments so we're 209 billion dollar fund we're invested in virtually every public company that anybody would know that's on on uh, in the stock markets US and globally as well. So, you know, the, the specific investment in this company goes back uh, a long time, uh, as I understand it, prior to to uh, Vicky being the, the CIO. So, at large, you know, through index funds. So, does that mean she was leading the investment? I don't think that's the case. I mean, if she went to work at McDonald's, would there be a conflict because we own McDonald's stock? Or she went to work for, I don't know, any name any business that's a public company. So, the fact that she was chief investment officer over a large portfolio, much of which is, is, is passively managed for index funds, and this company was in that index, is that directing money? I, I, I think that's a stretch. There was a, a, a uh, corporate bond that was uh, invested in as part of fixed income. That was a recommendation and action taken by the fixed income group during her tenure three years ago. Uh, I'm not aware that that was something that she directed so that she could then get a job when she retired three years later. If someone's got information to that effect, I think they should come forward with that information. But, um, you know, in, in my view of it, you know, she announced she was going to retire. Um, probably no surprise. She, she had decades of, of success as an investor in the private sector before she came to work with us, a successful investor in the, in the public arena. She's a woman. She's a woman of color, severely underrepresented groups on, on corporate boards. Uh, no surprise that she would be approached. Uh, and I'm, I haven't spoken to her since she left, but I wouldn't be surprised if other corporate boards wouldn't be reaching out to her. She would be the kind of corporate board candidate that I'm sure would be in demand. So to to make the jump, and a lot of the people criticizing this are people who don't believe we should have any investments in, in oil and gas companies. Those investments right. predate my time. They go back a long time. So this notion that there was some conflict um, or that she directed uh, investments, uh, I, I think, is, is – is, um, I, I just don't see – I don't see she, the wrongdoing. Would it, would it be more fair to say oversaw some increased investments in this in this company? Is that – I mean, is that uh, terminology? I don't think it well, – Mm-hmm. I don't think it would be. I mean, it, you know, again, if if 
if if if we invest through the index funds and and index funds usually fluctuate you know that that I am not aware of any conscious effort uh, to increase investment that Vicky personally made or that it was in any way tied to uh, her being approached to be on the board. So, so and, given, and if that's the allegation, I mean, I think somebody should come forward and just and just not put these little pieces together and say, aha, I found a conspiracy. So uh, is the argument that the corporate bond from 2015 that happened during her tenure, again, the fixed income group made that decision, uh, the, 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 that's where that emanated from. Does, and Vicky was the chief investment officer. So is that uh, is the allegation that three years ago she did that because she thought maybe she'd be on the board, you know, in 2018 that they'd approach it? I think it's a stretch. If someone's got information that that's what happened, if that's the conspiracy, if that's the quid pro quo, you know what? I think they should come forward with that information. I haven't been able to find that. So hearing you on all that, is there anything out of this situation that you think um, calls for any sort of uh, reform or change? Is there Should there be any different policy about, um, you know, sort of a cooling off period when people leave the controller's office? Well, before- there is. I mean, so she, so, I mean, again, she's a board member, right? So she's not an employee. It's, it's a different, that's a right. different role, but she couldn't, not that she would as a board member, but she could not come to us, uh, and pitch business, right? She couldn't come to us and say, Hey, you should invest, you know, more money in this company. Uh, she, that's prohibited. There's a bar, you know, it's under state law. So that would apply to her as it would apply to anybody. Understood. Okay, I so- wouldn't anticipate, though, as a board member. Board members don't generally, you know, board members oversee, you know, internal policy. They're not, they're not the ones seeking investment opportunities. Gotcha. So in our last minute here, give us your take on the state, the picture of state finances from your perspective. Um, and, and what if given another, another term by voters this November, what you're looking to to do from your purchase controller about the picture of overall state finances here. You and I have talked before about the state having too much debt, not enough savings. Yeah. Uh, what can you say to, to voters here in our last minute well, about that? Well, yeah, I know we got a short time, but we're certainly sounding the alarm uh, on that front in the context of two things. First of all, an economy that's been strong downstate, mixed performance upstate. And an economy, particularly when you look at the stock market, uh, at some point is going to correct, and, and there will be some slowdown of some kind. We hope not for a recession or, or, or a big correction in the markets or collapse like we saw a few years ago. But we have to be better prepared for that possibility. So more conservative estimates as far as revenue and spending as we move forward. Out-year budget gaps that are still there that have not been addressed. Uh, so some of that's tied to the performance of the economy. The other big risk that we have to be very concerned about, what's going to come out of Washington. These elections uh, really are key. We need to tip the balance in at least one, if not both of the houses of Congress, to put a stop to the to the Trump agenda, which really targets states like New York, particularly safety net programs. Healthcare has been a big area that we've leveraged a lot of dollars, and that's under threat if the Trump agenda would, uh, would take hold. So I'm going to wait and see what happens by November 6th. I'm hoping there'll be good news with at least the House, if not the Senate, also being in Democratic hands. But if that's not the case, uh, to pay for those tax cuts for the wealthiest, you're going to see many of the programs that we depend on in New York to really be under attack. And that's going to mean we're either going to have to cut services in New York or raise taxes to to keep them going. And and that's going to be a daunting task, especially if the economy starts to slow down. So Yeah. And we we unfortunately didn't have a get, get a chance this conversation to get into yeah. sort of the ramifications of the tax reforms yeah. that have already been passed. But hopefully yeah. we'll, we'll have a chance to talk to you more down the road. We're going to have to leave it there. But Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, thank 
thanks so much for for joining us on and, Maximum. And you did you did a great job for the both of you, even though Jarrett wasn't there. Thank <laughs> thanks you, a lot. Thanks. Take care. So you've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. That is it for today's show. You've heard from Republican controller candidate Jonathan Trichter and Democratic incumbent controller of New York State Tom DiNapoli. Tune in next week for Max and Murphy, and remember to be ready to vote this November. Mm-hmm.